Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. And then John's Gospel, chapter 19. Okay, John 19, 28, 23, 18. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it in his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloth lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloth lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Dead. Then the disciples went away again to their homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of the of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she said, had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She is supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabbi, which is said to be teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. You know, as newlyweds, Lindsay and I were able to scrape together enough cash to convince a bank to give us a loan for us to purchase the first house that we'd ever own. Unfortunately, though, all that we could afford was this really dilapidated little tiny two-bedroom house uh, that unfortunately had been foreclosed on shortly before we purchased it. And the people who lost their home to foreclosure decided that they would leave it in quite a, a disarray by trashing some things in the house and seemingly purposefully placing a nail into a pipe, causing a lot of water damage in the house. And so it was a lot of work for us to step into, but we felt like this was our one shot to get into the housing market. And so that overwhelming task became our new task. It became our new pressure and expectation and task to get done. And so we bought the fixer-upper and then spent months that stretched into a couple of years working away, even in some of the places in the house, stripping the house down just to the studs in order to build it back up and get it put back together until the day finally came where we finished it and we sold it and then handed over the keys to another couple that moved in. 
And I have to tell you, there was tremendous relief in that moment in time when I handed those keys off. And it wasn't just because there was finally money coming into our account rather than going out of it towards the house, but it was really that there was now this shift and transfer that took place in that moment where I realized this was no longer my responsibility. This was their problem to deal with. This was all of a sudden the weight that they had to feel of upkeeping this dilapidated little cute house. My work was done, though. And for me personally, I've driven by that house many times since then just to see if it's still standing or at least to see what color maybe it is by now. But I've driven by it, but I've never once walked up to knock on the door to ask them if I can come in to work again on the irrigation system in the backyard that constantly was cracking and needing fixing. I've never once asked if I could come in and plunge the toilet because it never seemed to flush and fully drain. I've never once asked to come in and work in the kitchen to refinish the cabinets again after all the hours I spent trying to do it myself. I've never done that because I know that my work is finished. I know that the task was finally completed, that the goal was reached, and so the responsibility was lifted off of my shoulders. I want you to hear what Jesus says in our passage today. Because what Jesus has done and proclaimed in our text today is he shouts out that it is finished. Which means that for you and I, we ought not to ever knock on salvation's door again to ask permission to come in and to do more work. Because the responsibility of all that needed to be done has been lifted off of our shoulders by Jesus. In fact, you could say it this way, that Jesus' final words from the cross can become heaven's first pronouncement over you that it is finished. It's been accomplished. The responsibility, it's lifted. Your work is done. The work, it's been finished by Jesus. You know, as a community, for us as a church, we've spent now a chunk of several weeks looking at John's gospel, first emphasizing those seven signs in John that climaxed in the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And John tells you the reason why he recorded those signs at the end of the gospel. He said, so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ and in believing in him, you would find life in his name. But at the end of John's gospel, what we've also found is that these final moments in Jesus' life function really as signposts still pointing us to these great realities outside of themselves that are worthy of us slowing down to give attention to them. So we've done that. We've discussed Jesus in Gethsemane and then Jesus on trial And then last week, Jesus on the cross. And today we find Jesus triumphant over death and the grave. Last week, I told you that there's four things I wanted to talk uh, through with you, but we only got to three of them. We talked about what Jesus becomes, that the Son of God became the forsaken of God in that moment on the cross. We also talked about what Jesus births, that at the cross, the Son of God, he birthed the family of God. And then we talked about what Jesus suffered, that at the cross, the Son of God suffered with and for the family of God. But today, we discuss what Jesus accomplished. You see, at the cross, the Son of God accomplished all that was needed for me to be accepted and welcomed into the family of God. So today, what I want to do with you is to explore and consider this massive and profound final statement made by Jesus from the cross. And then I want to look with you at Jesus' resurrection from the grave. So look again in your Bible at verse 30, where it says, So when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. To telestai in Greek, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Old commentator A.W. Pink, he writes that eternity will be needed to make manifest all that Tetelestai contains. 
Charles Spurgeon penned these words about what tetelestai, this, this statement that it is finished, what it conveys to us. He said it this way. Spurgeon said, an ocean of meaning in a drop of language, a mere drop. It would need all the other words that were ever spoken or ever can be spoken to explain this one word. It is altogether immeasurable. It is high, I cannot obtain it. It is deep, I cannot fathom it. It is finished is the most charming note in all of Calvary's music. You know, the other three gospels in this moment, they record only that Jesus cries out with a loud voice, making it clear that everyone who was present, it would have grabbed their attention. They would have turned their heads. But John gives us the content of what Jesus cries out triumphantly with a loud voice what his loud cry was. He cries out, it is finished. You see, the other gospels want to make clear to you that this is not the mutters of a defeated man or of a victim. This is John telling you that this is a conquering shout of a victor, not a victim. This is not the cry of defeat or a wail of despair. This is the shout of triumph, a declaration that he was victorious. And so Jesus, in that moment, he shouts so all can hear, it is is finished. And there's three things that I'd like to consider with you in light of Jesus' victorious statement. And so if you're taking notes, write them down. First, what was needed is important to understand. What was needed. But the second is what was accomplished. And then the third is why we can have confidence. When we're looking at Jesus' triumphant statement, we need to be clear on what was needed, on what was accomplished, and why we can have confidence. So let's start with that first one, what was needed. Have you ever wondered, why did someone need to live a perfect life and then suffer and die in humanity's place? Or let me word it a little bit differently. Have you ever wondered why Jesus needed to die for our sins? In fact, if you ask five people, you might get six or eight or 10 different answers to that. In fact, for some, they might focus on the cosmic victory that Jesus had when he defeated death and hell in that moment on the cross. Theologically, it's referred to as Christus Victor. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, it says it this way, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Others might answer that question of why Jesus needed to die, though, and they'd say, well, really, he did it as the ultimate example, where Jesus would embody and exemplify the selfless, self-giving love of God. Theologically, it's referred to as Christus or Christ the Exemplar. You find it in Romans chapter 5, where it says, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, but perhaps for a godly man or a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, for some, they'd answer that question of why Jesus needed to die, though, and they'd emphasize Jesus' sacrifice as it relates to human sin and God's wrath and justice and mercy and forgiveness. Theologically, they call it penal substitution. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, For I have delivered to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. Or 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, that says, And he himself is the propitiation. Other translations read, The atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the world. 
Now, propitiation is not really a word we use often, so let me give you a definition of it. It is the act that renders God propitious, which also is not a word that we use. It's pretty old school, but it means as favorable. It's it's speaking of the act that brings us into favor with God. This isn't a new concept. Ancient religions, all these pagan religions, even major religions today, they, they capture this idea that man has to appease God by offering sacrifices or, or through merits that they'd earn. However, the Bible teaches that God himself has provided the only means through which his wrath can be appeased and human sin can be, or human sinful man can be accepted and welcomed into the family of God. Don't miss this. This is what's so unique about Christianity. All these other religions tell you what you need to do the, the act that you need to commit in order to enter good graces and the favor of God. But the New Testament is so different because the act of propitiation always refers to the work of God and not the sacrifices or merits of men. Oh, but as we read through those verses, I, you probably noticed I tried to emphasize what the New Testament authors say again and again and again, and that's that Christ died for our sins for us, for the ungodly, for the world, they said. There's two Greek words for our English word for. One of them, it's just a simple word that directly translates to for or about something. It's what you saw there in 1 John chapter 2, where it says that Jesus became the propitiation for our sins. However, the majority of the time, a different word is used, which is translated from Greek to Latin to English. It's translated because of. That the word for, it means because of or in the place of. It's Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, where it says, because of the grace of God, he tasted death in the place of everyone. It's what you find in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, that Jesus died in the place of the ungodly. It's 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, that Christ died because of or in the place of sin. Remember, we're talking about what was needed. And we're asking, well, Well, have you ever wondered, why did Jesus even need to die? We see God created this world and called it good, even designing every living creature within it and even crafting mankind in his own image as free moral agents with free will, and he called that very good. But then one of the created beings in the presence of God turns on God, and when his rebellion failed in heaven, he brought it here to earth. And Satan now functions like a kid at a pool party who realizes as he's being pushed into a pool that some point, at some point in time, you stop fighting against people when you know you're going down from push, push, push. You shift your tactic to grab, 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 because you're determined, I will take as many of you down with me as I possibly can. That is what our enemy is doing. He's a defeated enemy who knows that his days are numbered and he's determined to hurt God by hurting those that he loves, by destroying the lives of people and their eternal destinations. But don't miss this. When mankind joined that rebellion back at the beginning of the book in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, it's clear that when they joined it, the result was death. The New Testament book of Romans reiterates this statement saying that the wages of sin is death. You see, on the heels of mankind's rebellion and the introduction of death and decay is where and when, though, we're introduced to the idea of a sacrifice for sin, which then becomes this repeated theme and pattern throughout the entire storyline of the Bible. It's Adam and Eve sacrificing an animal to cover themselves in their shame. 
It's Abel offering a lamb as a sacrifice to God, and God was pleased. It's Noah offering blood sacrifices to God. It's Abraham and God providing a sacrifice for him. It's them in Egypt, the children of Israel, where the judgment of God passes over them because of the blood of an innocent substitute substitute and sacrifice that allows judgment to pass over them. It's the priests then in the tabernacle and temple offering daily sacrifices there. You see, the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 22, says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. It's really interesting. When God gave the instruction to his people to construct the tabernacle and the temple, he gave instruction for every single utensil and piece of furniture that would find itself inside of it, an altar and and a laver and a table and a lamp and a veil and a lampstand, but there was no instruction for a chair that would find itself inside the tabernacle or later in the temple because the work was unending. There was never to be an end to the sacrifices and the bloodshed. It was an unending, vicious, goring mess. See, during this time frame, God gives his people his law. Yes, the Ten Commandments come to mind for us, but there's so much more that God instructed his people on, so much, in fact, that those stone tablets felt like a crushing stone that fell on top of all of them. Because through the law, no one is left feeling or being justified. All of us find ourselves guilty. But then this amazing thing happens in the Old Testament within the books of the law. There's a glimmer of hope through a a merciful mystery that God explains in Leviticus 16 and 17, where it tells you that God will accept the life of a blameless representative that will surrender its life for, in the place of another. On this appointed day that God called the Day of Atonement, when a sacrificial spotless lamb that is a blemishless and blameless animal offers its life as a representative and substitute for the life of a less than blameless and blemishless human who cannot return to God without facing justice. It's a foreshadow of what Christ would become and how Christ would give himself for us in the place of us. Oh, please hear me. A judge who pardons lawbreakers isn't a righteous judge at all. Just as overlooking sin would make our holy God unjust, God's righteous justice demands that just judgment come. But a God who would take his judgment taking our just judgment upon himself is both righteous and just while simultaneously proving himself to also be loving and merciful. And that is what you find at the cross of Christ. And that is why it's not just that Jesus had to die. That is why Jesus in this moment chooses to die because we were broken and sinful and rebellious enough that someone had to die for us while simultaneously finding ourselves to be loved enough by our gracious and merciful God that Jesus was willing to die for us, willing to die quite literally in the place of us. Oh, please hear me. It's important that we're clear on what was needed. What was needed was what Jesus would only, he alone, be able to do and provide. But the second thing is what was accomplished. The second thing is what he accomplished. Hear me say this, that the gospel message is not just that Jesus died as a sacrifice to save me from the penalty of my sin. It's that Jesus also lived in perfection as a substitute for me. 
He took my sin upon himself and I in that moment received his righteousness. He took what was wrong about me and paid for it and I received what was right about him and I'm rewarded for it. I please God because of it. We could illustrate it with a simple illustration like a bank account because we've all been there. When you find that your accounts are at negative, well, his death paid for that penalty and brought our balance back to zero. Yes, where we don't owe God anymore, but his perfect life placed credit and merit in our account in the eyes of God so that I now have an inexhaustible amount as a balance. It's not just that I don't owe God anymore. The gospel tells me that I please God now, that I'm right and righteous because of what Christ has done for me in my place that he took on my broken identity all the way down to my sin and my shame. And in exchange, I was given the identity of the Prince of Heaven, which meant his wealth and his home, his authority and him belonging as a son. Oh, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us. You see, the gospel is clear that you can have your own account and gold star count, or you can have Jesus's, but you can't have both. You can have your own account and your old, your own gold star chart, or you can have Jesus's, but you cannot have both. You see, I want you to consider with me what Jesus accomplished in this moment. If someone were to ask you, how's a person made right with God? What do you have to do to be right with God? If that's what they ask you, how would you respond? What would you tell them? My hope is that we would point them to this moment where Jesus would cry out and say, it is finished. Because you cannot be made right with God by your own effort, regardless of how much effort you make or what that effort actually does. The law of God is great for what it does, but are we clear on what it actually does? Does it justify us? Does it earn us brownie points in heaven? Or does the law expose you to you like a mirror? And in doing so, expose you to your deep need for a rescue, for a savior. You see, if you depend on what you do in order to feel confident that you can now approach God because you have now found and earned his favor, then you're saying that Jesus didn't need to die and you're calling Jesus a liar in this moment when he, as a victor, cries out saying, the work is done, it is finished. See, Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice paid once and for all for the sins of the world and he paid it so completely and so fully that there's no longer a need for sacrifice. There's no longer a need for anything else to be done because the debt was totally paid off, completely. In fact, he's so fully paid that the book of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says it this way. It's so beautiful that he endured the cross, despising the shame and is now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is seated because the work is done, because the debt was paid, because there's nothing left to be accomplished for man to be reconciled with God. Oh, remember, in the temple and the tabernacle, there was never a chair because it was an unending pattern and rhythm, a constant slaughtering of animals to cover our sin. But Christ died once and for all and is now seated. He's seated, and when you think about it, God's divine satisfaction is only seen two times in the pages of Scripture. 
Only twice in all of history. It's seen once in the Old Testament and once in the New. It was once at the dawn and creation of all things, and then once at the consummation and rescuing of all things. Once he completed his work of creation in the Garden of Eden, where he sat back and said, it is very good, and then rested. And now he's accomplished in this moment on the cross when he cries out, it is finished. He's completed the work of redemption and he said it clearly, it is finished. It's done. There will be a seventh saying after this one that Jesus will make from the cross and it's simply into your hands I commit my spirit. He breathes his last and enters into rest. My friends, Jesus in triumph cries out, it is finished. It's just three words in English, but really one in Greek, to telestai. And maybe you've heard this mentioned before, but there's, there's a variety of uses that scholars tell us about this ancient word that maybe we lose in our, our modern setting. We miss out on the deep and impactful meaning because it was a word that would be used of a servant. When his master had sent him out to do a task, when he came back to report that he had accomplished all that he set out to do, this was the word he would use. To telestai, it's finished. I've accomplished what you've given me to do. It makes me think of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, where it says, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. And Jesus in this moment says, In mission accomplished, the servant has accomplished all you've asked me to do. It was a word that was used of a priest when examining a lamb, when it finished, when it passed the inspection, when it was acceptable. They would say, To telestai. One writer even suggested that this would have taken the minds of those standing by to the priests on the Day of Atonement, where they would pronounce the Hebrew equivalent after offering the sacrificial lamb as a substitute. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from the aimless conduct you received by tradition from your fathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. All those Old Testament sacrifices, they covered sin, but they could never take it away. But Jesus accomplished what all the old covenant sacrifices could not do. It was used of a servant. It was used of a priest. It was also used by artists, historians tell us. When they finished their masterpiece and there was nothing left to be added, nothing more to be done, to be added to the portrait or, or to be moved around in the sculpture, They would pronounce this statement to Telestai, and they would unveil their masterpiece. It's beautiful because the death of Jesus Christ finished the picture of redemption, a masterpiece which had been in the mind and the heart of God since before the dawn of creation. And here is God pronouncing, and the masterpiece is completed. It was a word that was most commonly used by merchants and bankers. We know this from ancient papyri that's been unearthed that has documentation of debts that were owed to different merchants and marketplaces, but over top of it, again and again, you find this word written. It's telling you that their debt is canceled, that they no longer owe a debt, but that it's been paid in full. And that's what Christ has done for each of us. It's a word that also, historians tell us, was used For prisoners, when they were put into a jail cell, their charges would be pinned on the front of the cell, but when they had served their time, the judge would write over top of it this very word, to Telestai, paid in full, it is finished, so that they could carry with them that statement. So if anyone ever approached them and reminded them, you're that criminal who did that thing, who's deserving of, you could say, nah, uh, uh, I'm deserving of nothing, I've already had my debt paid. 
It's been paid in full. I'm a free man, a free woman. In fact, there's one source I read that even said that this was used as a battle cry. A military leader would cry out to Telestai when their enemy was defeated, when they had routed them completely. This is how people knew that the battle was over, that the victory was theirs. And Jesus in this moment on a cross cries out, it is finished. You could say it this way, that Jesus' final words to humanity from the cross can become heaven's first pronouncement over you. That the work is done, that the debt is paid, that the masterpiece is complete, that it is finished. Well, it's important to understand what was needed. We've got to be clear on what Jesus accomplished. But I think the real challenge is we've been told since we were children when something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So how could we be certain? Why, the third thing, why can I have confidence in this? Why can I have confidence that it truly is finished, that the work is complete, that the burden is lifted off me, the responsibility is gone, it's not mine to work on. I ought not to knock on the door and come back in looking to work. How can I have confidence? Why should we have confidence? You know, it's been well said that Christ's resurrection is the Father's amen to the Son's declaration that it is finished. You see, looking to the cross, we see the work of redemption. It's completed in that moment. But looking to the empty tomb, we see Jesus' finished work is fully accepted by the Father in that moment. I mean, did you notice in our series, as we looked at the seven signs in John, that they escalate and they build up to this climactic finish, beginning with a stone pot when Jesus turns water to wine, ending in a dead body in a stone tomb. The first sign brought the beauty of red wine filling that vessel. The final sign, though, involves the miraculous production of blood that begins to pump again through a man's ice-cold, rigid, decomposing body. But the seven signs in John, they don't really climax in the resurrection of Lazarus because that moment really serves as a precursor and build up to the moment where Jesus proves that he does not merely hold the power of resurrection in life, but when he raises his own body from the dead, we start to see that he is the resurrection and life. You see, the true climax of Jesus' signs in John's gospel is the resurrection of Jesus. Or remember, please, that John tells you at the end of his gospel, the reason he's utilizing these signs is so that you would believe that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ, the Son of God. And we've discussed in the past reasons why I personally believe in the resurrection, why I trust it as a historically documented, actual historical event that took place. And I can remind you quickly of what those are, but we won't dive into them deeply. But I just begin by throwing out there that one of the reasons I believe is because of the rise of Christianity in Jerusalem. There are two governing authorities in the first century that existed there, the Romans and the Jews, both in Scripture and outside of it. Historians tell us very clearly they tried to squash the Christian movement that rose out of the dust of Jerusalem, that rose with the testimony that Jesus was alive. And if they wanted to shut up that early movement... All they had to do was drag out a body. But they didn't because they couldn't because the body was gone. It's not just the rise of Christianity in Jerusalem in the first century. It's the incredible persecution and death that the disciples would endure. Remember, because of their testimony that they saw Jesus alive, they would be arrested and beaten. Some would be crucified. One would be flayed alive. They'd be run through with spears. Historians tell us the gruesome ways that they'd be tortured to death. And yet they would never recant. 
They'd never turn away from their statement that they saw Jesus, a risen Savior, alive. Listen, no one dies for what they know to be a lie, and they would have known if it was a lie because the lie would have been started with them. They either saw him alive or they made it all up and died for a lie. Oh, there's a massive difference between a suicide bomber who's willing to die for what they believe to be true that's passed down to them from the 7th century versus the disciples knowing firsthand if it's a lie because it would have been made up and started with them. It's not just that. It's the shift in beliefs and practices of thousands of Jews that those beliefs and practices weren't just things that tethered them to a culture and a religion. They were the practices like bringing animal sacrifices to the temple that they believed covered their sin and made them acceptable to God. And yet they left those practices. And yet they began meeting rather than on the Sabbath. They met on Sundays, calling it the Lord's Day to celebrate their risen Savior, whom they saw alive from the dead. Well, it's also that we've talked before about all the unreasonable alternative theories that people throw out there and say, well, maybe this is what happened or this is an option. And they're so unreasonable that they're easily dismissed. But our text today introduces two very simple ones that many Christian historians and apologists point to as reasons to also trust the biblical testimony that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. And these are really simple, but, but very quickly, they're worth your time and your attention. And the first thing being the confusion of the disciples who first reached the tomb. They found no body there, but they found Jesus's grave clothes and the wrap, it says, that went around his head, neatly folded and arranged in an organized fashion in the tomb. Look in your Bible again, please, at verse Five, and it says, when he, John, stooped down and looked in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. And the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. When it tells you here that Simon Peter saw, it's a very interesting and deliberate choice of wording that John uses in his gospel. Because it's not the typical Greek word that just means to see something. It's instead the Greek word theoreo, from where we get our English word to theorize. The Greek word means to view in attentively, to survey, to view something mentally. But what is Peter and John with him attentively, mentally processing and reasoning through when they look into the tomb and see no body, but they see grave clothes that are neatly folded up and placed in order? Well, think about it. Observe it with them. It makes no sense. If a grave robber had come in and taken the body of Jesus in the middle of the night, they would not have taken the time to undress his body so that his decaying corpus, smelly and mangled, his bloodied body would then be what they would be shouldering as they, they stole the body and ran off into the darkness. Nor would they have taken the time after undressing him to then neatly fold the grave clothes in order to leave them behind. They would have grabbed the body and run. But even if it was one of Jesus' own followers who had taken the body, it makes no sense what they looked in and saw because they would never have taken the time to undress it and shamefully in doing so dishonor their master by carrying his body naked through the streets. So what you do in this moment is you find Peter and John both seated there theorizing what it meant, theorizing what might have happened in this moment. This is important. Don't miss this. What you're seeing here is that even for Jesus's own disciples, this was both unexpected. This moment was please hear that. 
This moment was unexpected, and it took actual reasoning for them to even begin to process and then to believe and embrace that maybe Jesus is alive. You see, John indicates that when he would walk away from the tomb that day, after seeing the evidence and processing it, he left with a measure of faith. But it would not be until Jesus appeared to him and to the other disciples that they would fully believe and understand that Jesus was, in fact, alive, having been raised from the dead. And from there, then, they would march forward, heralding their message of a risen Christ, even at the cost of their own lives. The resurrection of Jesus did not fit the expectations, though, of a Jewish culture. They anticipated a future nationwide resurrection of the dead. They weren't looking for a single person to rise. It made no sense to them. That's why they were so shocked and couldn't fathom what they were seeing. The resurrection of Jesus, it didn't fit the expectations of the Romans either, who believed that the greatest thing that would happen in life was that your spirit would finally be freed from your mortal body. And so for a spirit to come back into it, it's unthinkable. It's the worst thing that could happen. This was clearly not something that even the disciples of Jesus living in that cultural moment expected. And therefore, you can deduce that this is not something then that they were involved in because they were perplexed by it. Oh, it's the, the fact that these guys are bewildered in this moment. But here's a second reason I think that you can trust that this actually did happen. A second piece of unique evidence that John's gospel uniquely highlights for us. And that's that in the story, Mary Magdala, or Mary Magdalene, Mary from Magdala, a city that's along the western shores of, this, of the Sea of Galilee, she arrives at the tomb, and she too, in that moment, is bewildered and befuddled by what she finds with no body of Jesus in sight. You remember that she sees someone else in the garden, assuming it's the gardener, she asks him, where's the body and did you take it? You even, you, you expect to hear some aggression in that tone, like, how dare you? If you have it, give him to me. But then the man's response is simply to address her by name, Mary. And it must have been the tone of voice that made it all click that she then realized, Rabboni, Rabbi, my teacher, my master, it's Jesus. Now, now hear me, please. It may not feel shocking to us that Jesus first reveals himself alive from the dead to a woman, and that a woman's testimony was the first that went out about him being alive from the dead. This, however, was a stunning detail in the ancient cultures and in the era that Jesus arrived into. You see, there's some modern commentators, such as scholar Andres Kostenberger, when looking at this moment in scripture, they reference an older objection to the Christian testimony that Jesus had raised from the dead written in the second century by a Greek philosopher named Celsus. I'm sorry this is nerdy. Give me 60 seconds. Then I'll be done. Celsus is known, second century, he's known as the first great critic of Christianity, with much of his writing being preserved because early church fathers, they wrote responses, public responses, to Celsus' accusations and attacks against the Christian message. Predominantly, the rebuttal written by Origen of Alexandria in the third century, about a hundred years after Celsus made his attack. But his main attack against the Christian message was focused squarely on the resurrection. And in the crosshairs of his attack on the resurrection was Mary Magdalene. I will sheepishly quote his attack to you. Remember, this is in the second century. Here's how he believed he could dismantle the Christian message of a resurrected savior. Here's what he said. 
And I quote, how can anyone expect rational men to listen to the testimony of a hysterical female? Now, Celsus would be canceled in our modern culture, but his attempt to undermine the trustworthiness account of Jesus' firsthand eyewitness to his erection, his attempt to, to undermine it was by referring to Mary Magdalene as a, and I quote, hysterical female deluded by sorcery. Elsewhere, he concluded Christianity is for hysterical women, children, and idiots. Because again, who would trust the testimony of a woman? And maybe you're asking yourself, why does that matter? Because it's important to understand that in the first century, women were not even eligible to testify in a Jewish court of law. Josephus, the Jewish historian, he makes comments about how even the witness of multiple women was not acceptable because of the levity, Josephus said, the flippancy and boldness of their sex, their, their femaleness. So think this through. In a culture and era when women were held in such low regard, if the story were just made up, why in the world would you make the first witness and the first one to testify of the resurrection be a woman who'd be easily brushed aside? Celsus' writings make it clear that in that era, it was a legitimate hurdle for the early church to overcome because the culture would so easily disregard the report of the original witnesses of the resurrection because it was Mary and these women with her. But what was once considered a weakness in the credibility of the eyewitness account of Jesus' resurrections then becomes in our modern culture, it's pretty amazing, has come to be seen as just the opposite of that. Because no one who's making up this story would have wanted it recorded and reported by a woman in that era. The logical conclusion then was that this was not a cleverly crafted and fabricated lie put out there by Jesus' first century followers. If it was, they would have been smart enough to go about it in a very, very different way. You see, the only really reasonable or plausible explanation then is that this did in fact happen. That Jesus did rise from the dead and first appeared even to women. Which isn't just shocking, it's really beautiful that when God could choose anyone he, he wanted to be the first herald of his identity as proven by his resurrection in that culture, what he chose was a woman and not a man, was a restored mental health patient and public outcast at that, Mary Magdalene, and not a prestigious or noble man. Or remember, Mary was an individual that the Bible tells you in Luke's gospel had her mental status once in question because Mary had been plagued by many demons. And if you look at the description of others who are plagued by demons, I mean, these people are suicidal. They're often naked, living in isolation, terrorizing communities. This is the reputation. This was the life that Mary had lived until she met Jesus. And Jesus would reveal his true identity as a risen savior to her first. Just think of what a beautiful statement that makes. That the gospel of Jesus is not reserved for the strong, the respected, or the worthy. It's offered to, the, to absolutely everyone, for none are worthy, and none would be beneath or beyond the gospel's reach. It's been reserved for, it has not, please hear me, it has not been reserved for the worthy, for Christ did the work for us to make us who are unworthy, worthy. And that's why he cried out in that moment, it is finished. 
Oh, please hear me that Christ's resurrection is not only the final form of proof that his identity, the identity of Jesus can be trusted, it is also the Father's final amen to the Son's declaration that it is finished. You see, at the cross, we see the completion of the work of redemption. But looking at an empty tomb, we see Jesus' finished work fully accepted by the Father. Why don't you close your Bible? Author Timothy Keller, he said it this way. He says, religion says finish the work. The gospel says receive the finished work. Religion says if you finish the work, someday God might give you acceptance and love and blessing. The gospel says receive the finished work of Jesus Christ and you get love and acceptance and all of that blessing now completely, totally. You know, according to tradition, Buddha's dying words were strive without ceasing. Really, that's the mandate and mantra of every religion. Strive without ceasing. Don't you ever give up trying to make yourself worthy. Oh, contrast that with Jesus' dying words here in this moment with his arms outstretched pronouncing, it is finished. You see, Christianity is not a religion where you have to try hard to become or make yourself worthy. It's the only religion that is not trying to reach up to the divine or to reach into nirvana or enlightenment. It's the religion where God reaches down to us to rescue us. Oh no, we do not live striving to become worthy. It's that Christ has taken our place to make us worthy. And when Christ came, he invited humanity to come to him. And what he promised we would find if we came to him, he said, was rest for our weary souls. And this moment, this statement is where that rest was purchased. It's where that rest remains secured. It's where it is forever made available to us. There's a Greek linguist by the name of Kenneth Wiest who he points out about Jesus' statement that this is a statement that he made in the perfect tense, not the past tense, not the present tense, in the perfect tense. Don't miss this idea of Jesus making this statement in the perfect tense. It's significant, because, it's significant because the perfect tense speaks of an action that has been completed in the past with results that are continuing to play out in the present and into the future. It's different from past tense, which looks back to an event and says, this happened. Now, the perfect tense adds the idea that this happened and it is still in effect today. You see, when Jesus cried out, it's finished, he meant that it was finished in the past. It is still finished in the present and it will forever remain finished into the future. Oh, hear me, please. You cannot do anything to save yourself because Christ has already done all that God would require. You need only to put your faith in him. We do not find in Christianity a do religion. You find instead a done religion. For Christ has done all that was needed. It is finished, he said. These are words that shook the world. That shake it for all of eternity. Let these words shake your soul today. When you're ashamed, hear his words, it's finished. When you don't feel good enough, hear him say, it's finished. 
When you're faced with your own failures and shortcomings, hear his victorious shout, it's finished. When you think you need to earn your way back into God's love or failure, hear him say, it's finished. When you begin to say, thank you, God, for forgiving me, but you begin to think, now I'm going to do my best to really earn and deserve this place, hear him say, no, no, it's finished. It's finished. It's finished. Hear today Jesus' final word from the cross and receive it afresh as heaven's first pronouncement over you that it is finished. John's gospel, it closes by saying, and Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Why don't you stand with me? Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.